Welcome to Off the Cuff with Congressman Jared Huffman. As a representative for California's 2nd Congressional District, Off the Cuff is my opportunity to talk with you about important issues and to introduce you to interesting people from the 2nd District and beyond. It's unfiltered, it's direct, and it's honest. It's Off the Cuff with me, Congressman Jared Huffman. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Off the Cuff. I'm Congressman Jared Huffman. I want to give a little warning that the subject we're covering today is uh, not a lighthearted subject. Uh, it's a heavy subject. It's a serious one. We're going to talk about gun violence in America and the need for common sense reform. And uh, this has become what I believe is a devastating crisis in our country. Uh, and yet it's not the first thing you hear about on the nightly news right now because we've got a whole bunch of other crises unfolding, but still our gun violence problems, our gun violence epidemic, as many call it, they haven't gone away and we need to keep working to end this tragedy. And I have a great person joining us for this podcast to talk about that. It is Chelsea Parsons. She is the Vice President of Gun Violence Prevention Policy at the Center for American Progress. And uh, at CAP, her work focuses on advocating for progressive laws and policies relating to gun violence and uh, also criminal justice reform at the federal, state, and local levels. Uh, before that work, she was general counsel to the New York City Criminal Justice Coordinator. And she worked on legislation there in areas including human trafficking, sexual assault, family violence, firearms, identity theft, all kinds of things. And uh, before that, she was an assistant New York State Attorney General and uh, a staff attorney and law clerk for the second Circuit Court of Appeals. So really honored to have you join us. Chelsea, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'd like to get us started by asking whether you think we still do have a gun violence crisis or an epidemic. Uh, certainly the, the horrific mass shootings that we had begun to get used to, unfortunately, in this country uh, have either not happened as much lately or, or we're not reading about them as much because other things are pushing it off the front page. Where do we stand? And uh, do you think this still rises to the level of one of our very top concerns? Yeah, you know, unfortunately, it, it does. And contrary to the perception one might have by just media coverage of this issue over the last year, 2020 was an extremely devastating year for gun violence across the country. Um, there were actually 611 mass shootings in 2020, in which four or more people were shot. Um, but because there weren't the kind of public school shooting, you know, the really horrific um, events that, that tend to capture media attention, um, you know, I think a lot of people have the perception that, that, this, that this isn't as much of a problem. And, and unfortunately, it really is. We also, in 2020, had the dynamic of dramatic increases in gun sales um, as a result of the, the increased uncertainty and anxiety that a lot of people were feeling um, with respect to the pandemic. And so we are very much still dealing with this public health crisis. Um, you know, gun violence in all of its forms um, takes the life of more than 100 people in this country every day. And so it is still very much um, a, a top priority, uh, in my view. You make a really good point that um, people sometimes conflate the gun violence problem in this country with just mass shootings. 
And if you happen to go for a period of time where there isn't a high profile mass shooting, uh, you know, there might be an assumption that we were getting uh, the situation under control. But I, I think I hear you say the numbers continue to get worse in terms of accidental and intentional tragic events happening from guns. Yeah, and you know, the COVID has really exacerbated many different aspects of gun violence. And so, you know, for example, um, in a typical year, two thirds of all gun deaths are suicides. And we know that many, many people are struggling um, with uh, increases in, in mental health issues um, and in increases in, in suicidality as a result of all of the, the stress we're all under um, due to the pandemic. Um, domestic violence has been exacerbated um, during COVID and, and during these periods where, where people are locked in their homes and, and access to firearms increases the risks of, of murders of women in a domestic violence situation. You have more children spending more time at home because um, they aren't in school. And far too many families um, have households that have unsecured firearms and, and you know, increasing the risk that children will gain access to them. And then you have the dynamic of homicides and you know, many, many cities in this country over the last year have, have increased, have experienced an increase in, in shootings and in homicides. And so we're just really um, seeing all different aspects of gun violence continuing to be a really serious problem. Right, I, I wonder if, the lack of high profile mass shootings might not also have something to do with the fact that we don't have as many gatherings. We don't have as many soft targets during a pandemic when a lot of schools are not open, when you know crowds, concerts, things like that aren't, aren't happening. Uh, but you make some really great points there. I, I wanna um, trace a little bit of our history thinking about this issue in terms of our founding where the right to bear arms was written into our constitution and then going all the way through the history of our country to today, where we have millions of assault weapons out there in circulation, and we have weapons that were designed to inflict all of this carnage on the battlefield that are being sold out of people's trunks of their cars without background checks, without even any records in some cases. I think it's fair to say that things have escalated way beyond anything that our framers and their powdered wigs could have ever imagined uh, back at the founding of this country, but I want to ask your thoughts. How did we get here? Yeah, that's a that's a very big question. How did we get here? Um, you know, up until the Supreme Court's decision in 2008 um, in the Heller case, it was a very open question as to whether or not the Second Amendment did in fact give individuals um, a right to bear arms. Um, not connected to any kind of militia service, which the language of, of that amendment suggests. And so, um, you know, it's a, it's a relatively recent phenomenon that we have this sense of a personal constitutional right um, to, to keep and, and bear arms. When I think about how did we get here, um, I immediately think of the shift in the politics of this issue that took place in the late 1970s. Um, and, and that shift really occurred around um, a dramatic shift with the National Rifle Association and, and what the leadership of that organization um, deemed to be its primary purpose. And, and in the late 70s, you have this, um, this shift in leadership um, that really took the organization in a much more 
um, political direction. So prior to that, the NRA was very much about, um, you know, education and services for hunting, exactly, and sportsmen and sports shooting and things like that. And they really took a turn um, toward the political um, in the late 70s. And, and since that time, have really contributed to the extremism that we now see around um, the issue of, of guns and gun rights um, and, and have really done a lot of work to uh, socialize this idea of um, firearms as an inherent personal God-given right um, and and really has taken this all or nothing approach when it comes to um, any kind of effort to constrain gun ownership, to put any kind of regulation in place around commerce and firearms. Um, and, and that really contributed to this hyper-partisan environment that we now are in when it comes to anything related to firearms. And so that's a, a little piece of kind of how we got to where we are right now, um, but I, I I, I both don't want to give the NRA too much power, but on the other hand, I don't want to minimize yeah. their role in creating this cultural narrative that is um, that is held by many, many um, Americans now around firearm ownership being um, a, a, a deeply intertwined element of personal freedom. Yeah. And I think that narrative is, is Frankly, it's dangerous, and it and it really gets to some of the problems that we're seeing right now. So, so the NRA was very successful in uh, establishing that narrative and building an awful lot of political cloud, as we know. But how did they get to that? Because my sense is that that did not develop organically from multi generational, you know, hunters and lovers of you know outdoor sports. Uh, that this came from folks. Uh, at corporations that stood to make an awful lot of money by developing that narrative and then selling lots and lots of expensive weapons. Am I wrong about that? No, you're absolutely right. And you know, it's the it, it, if you if you read about the history of the NRA, you know, the this this shift um, took place, uh, and it's referred to as the Cincinnati Revolt, which is very dramatic. Um, but at one of their annual board meetings, there was um, there was a leadership takeover um, by the, the wing of the NRA that was much more closely associated with the gun industry. And, um, and you know, though the, the industry and the organization now um, have a very symbiotic relationship and, and um, you know, the messaging that the NRA promotes is directly related to um, growth in profits of the gun industry and sales, increased sales of firearms. What's your sense of the uh... The, the current state of play for the NRA. I mean, obviously they've run into all kinds of scandal and uh, they've been exposed for corruption and all sorts of misconduct, had to leave the state of New York. Uh, they seem to be in disarray. They haven't had the kind of uh, cloud in recent elections that they certainly did for a long time. And meanwhile, there's been this uh, surge of influence from a lot of gun violence prevention organizations. So. Um, have, have the tables turned a little bit and, and you know, should we uh, not think about the NRA so much or is your concern that they're going to just kind of restructure down in Texas and come back stronger than ever? I think that the NRA is certainly um, in a more vulnerable position than it has ever been. Um, and I think that they are going to 
be in that position for a while. It, it seems like the um, my, my former office that I used to work for with the New York Attorney General's office is not at all interested in letting them off the hook because they want to declare bankruptcy and, and shift the proceedings to Texas. So, um, but I think that, you know, the NRA has been a bit of a paper tiger for a while. And so I think that while their financial situation is certainly more precarious than it's been, they don't have the ability to spend quite as much um, in elections as they have in the past. There, there is still, I think, um, you know, a fair amount of, of political power that they wield um, with respect to, um, you know, elected members of Congress and senators, you know, and, and I think that they um, there's still a fair uh, amount of, of legislators who are going to continue to kind of toe that, that NRA line going forward. Yeah. So l- let's talk about domestic terrorism. Uh, it is no secret that um, there are a lot of right-wing extremists and other extremists that are out in the open proudly promoting firearm possession, advocating for little to no oversight or restrictions when it comes to guns. And uh, they've been encouraged and enabled in all of that by uh, former President Trump, among others. Uh, What do you think we need to understand about this linkage between uh, violent extremists and potential domestic terrorists and our inability to pass common sense gun violence reform? Yeah, I I appreciate that question because um, I think the the very deep connection between violent extremists individuals and organizations and um, and guns is is often overlooked um, but these these groups have a very deep um, a very deep connection to gun rights efforts and and many of these groups you know thinking of oath keepers and three percenters and the boogaloo and and others, um, a core part of their ideology is a very extreme view of of the the right to to own and possess and carry and display firearms. And so um, it's a a crucial thing to understand. Um, You know, a lot of the of the activism or or the that we've seen from these extremist groups prior to, uh, you know, what happened um, at the Capitol a few weeks ago, and even, you know, prior to 2020, was all focused on state legislative efforts to enact stronger gun laws. And so, you know, in January of 2020, there was a huge armed protest in Richmond in advance of the legislative session in Virginia because um, the governor had promised to put forward a really ambitious package of, of laws to strengthen gun laws in Virginia. And so um, there's a really deep um, vein of gun rights extremism that runs through a lot of these groups. And I'm hoping that we will see more efforts at the state level to really put some stronger limits around the ability to openly carry firearms in the community. Um, And that's really something that has to be done at the state level, but almost every state has pretty permissive open carry laws that just allow people to display their firearms um, wherever they want to go. And so, um, you know, I think we're starting to see at the state level some efforts to put more restrictions around that. But I think that that's really important to start reestablishing some cultural norms around guns and that it is not um, 
it is not appropriate to have this level of open gun carrying in our communities. Yeah, you know, is it just me or um, has something changed in the way people advocate for gun rights? Because I remember not that long ago, um, they put forward advocates and spokespersons who at least tried to assure us that they were safe, responsible members of the community. Uh, these days, it's like we had the most militant, intimidating, thuggish people out there, almost as if to say, if you try to regulate my guns, I'm going to use them against you. They're the last people we want to have these assault rifles and other weapons. And they seem to be proving the point every single day. Uh, what, what has become of the, the sensible, responsible gun owner these days? That's an excellent question. I would love to know. <laughs> um, I would love to know because you, you used to see more of that from the NRA, um, but I haven't heard the NRA make a peep about what happened a few weeks ago or any of the armed extremism that we've seen over the last year. I, I didn't hear the NRA condemn the militia folks in Michigan who stormed the state capitol and forced them to close the legislative session. Um, so, it, you know, the increase, this just contributes, I think, to the very extreme um, polarization of this issue where I'm not seeing the, the reasonable gun owner um, in the political discourse that much anymore. Now there are there are there are some who are working with groups like Everytown and Giffords and Brady who are trying to kind of take back the the public perception of what a gun owner is and should be away from the extremists. But it's certainly um, right now the extremists are definitely taking up most of the oxygen on the issue. Well, and I know one of those uh, responsible, reasonable gun owners uh, is my colleague Mike Thompson in the House of Representatives. He's led our task force uh, in the Congress trying to push forward common sense gun reforms. And he owns a ton of guns and he hunts and he shoots. So um, that is to some extent reassuring. Uh, but under a Republican Senate and White House, all of his efforts and our efforts uh, have gone nowhere. And so let me ask you about that. How likely will the fact that we now have a new administration uh, the Senate is no longer under Mitch McConnell's lockdown, although we still have a, a filibuster rule. Um, what, what do you see uh, in terms of the opportunities for change given this new political landscape? It's really exciting. And, you know, we were so thrilled to, to work with, with you and your colleagues in the last Congress in the House to pass some really important gun safety legislation um, in the last Congress, HR 8 to, to enact universal background checks, um, HR 11 12 to close the Charleston loophole. Um, and we moved some bills in committee as well. So, you know, I'm really excited I'm, and, and looking forward to working with you and your colleagues to do that again in the House and, and pass these, these really important measures and, and send them back over to the Senate. And, you know, the Senate remains challenging with the filibuster. But we have the ability now to call votes. And I think that one of the things that Mitch McConnell was able to do during the time that he was the, the leader is protect that caucus from having to actually go on the record about things like background checks, right? And so I, I am eager to see what happens when push comes to shove and there is a universal background checks bill on the floor of the Senate. Um, and you know, we know that the politics of this issue have shifted dramatically in the last eight years. Um, and I think many of the, of the members 
are going to be facing re-election in states that are very supportive of measures like universal background checks. So, you know, I think I think it's still an uphill climb to uh, to get all the way there, but I think we can definitely make some some great progress with this Congress. Yeah. That, that's a great point. What about uh, President Biden's executive authority? Are there some things that he can do even without Congress to, to move the needle? Absolutely. Um, and we worked with um, you know, nearly 100 um, organizations to send a letter to the Biden um, transition team back in the fall with dozens of ideas um, and recommendations for executive action. And, you know, I think one of the biggest things that the Biden administration can do is really establish um, a new baseline for how we're approaching the issue of gun violence and, and to really use the bully pulpit and to organize the federal government to approach this as a public health crisis, um, which is exactly what it is, and to use an all of government approach, not just the Department of Justice and not just a law enforcement approach, but to use the resources at HHS and at HUD and Veterans Affairs and all of the agencies to really look comprehensively at each different piece of this problem and the power and the resources at each of the federal agencies that can be brought to bear to address it. And that's one of the big things that we're hoping to see from, from the Biden administration. Um, I think we're looking to see some real progress in the budget um, and in really identifying additional funding to support local violence prevention and intervention programs. We know that there is a lot of really um, great work happening in local communities, um, but it's never funded enough and it's never funded in a consistent and stable way. And, and so, um, you know, President Biden, when he was campaigning, um, you know, promised $900 million to support that kind of work. And so we're really looking forward to seeing that. Um, and then there's a ton of other things. I mean, one of the things that I am really eager to get to work on is increasing oversight and accountability of the gun industry. Um, and that's work that happens um, at ATF. And, you know, ATF has, uh, has is, a, is a troubled agency, has been a troubled agency for many years. But one of the big problems is it hasn't had um, confirmed leadership since 2015. So, so I'm really looking forward to the Biden administration nominating a strong ATF director who has gun violence prevention values and who will recognize the importance of the regulatory work that that agency does. They're the only federal agency that has jurisdiction over the gun industry. Um, and so really looking forward to working with the administration on how can we have more robust oversight and controls over this industry that pumps millions and millions of guns into our communities every year. Yeah, thank you for that. So we're let, let's go from the, the macro part of this conversation to uh, for me, at least a micro part, and that's my day-to-day -day work environment in the Congress um, and the issue of political violence. I now have colleagues, uh, for the first time I can remember, who have openly threatened other political leaders and who are bringing guns onto the floor of the United States Congress and bragging about it and flouting the rules against that and refusing to stop at metal detectors, uh, things really seem to have escalated to a new and, and pretty troubling level. And as you may know, I am trying to address that part of this gun violence problem before something really tragic happens in the Congress, which I think is just a matter of time. Um, what are your thoughts about uh, where we might go with that issue? Well, I think it's, it's one of those things that I think many people don't realize that this 
exception exists that members of Congress are able to bring their guns onto the onto the floor. Um, and when they, when people, when I, when I share that with people, it kind of blows their mind a little bit, you know, why would anybody need to do that? And what, it, it, that doesn't make any sense. And so, you know, I appreciate the work that you're doing here, um, largely again, because I think we need to reestablish some basic cultural norms around guns and gun possession and gun carrying and reestablish some lines around what is and is not appropriate and acceptable. And I think a very basic um, line should be, you know, in our, our halls of government and in, and in places where, um, you know, the highest level of work uh, of government import is being done. So, um, you know, I, I really commend the work that you're doing there. And, and I, I just extend my best wishes to you and your staff and all of the staff who have had to deal with just unspeakable trauma over the past few weeks, and you know, really appreciate all of your. I hope we can uh, hope we can turn the the tragedy of all that into some progress. So uh, thank you for your well wishes. I uh, just have one final question. Um, we have, I think, made some great strides in recent years on um, public opinion, mm -hmm. on uh, developing a, developing a, a growing and powerful constituency for gun violence prevention. Uh, it's, it's really wonderful to see the, the kind of political muscle that's now being flexed on the other side of this issue, on the side of safety and common sense reform. Uh, but we still really haven't moved the policy needle very much. And so uh, I guess my, my closing question for you is, um, are we winning? Uh, how do you think we're doing? And uh, for folks who are out there, maybe they're survivors or family members of a victim, um, what are the prospects of meaningful reform going forward? I think we are stronger as a movement than we've ever been. And I think that we need to recalibrate what we consider winning. So when I think about the progress that has been made at the state level over the past eight years now since the shooting um, at Sandy Hook Elementary School, we've made tremendous progress um, enacting universal background checks in many, many states, um, enacting extreme risk protection order laws in many states. Um, you know, the one of the things that that you know people who do grassroots advocacy work always say is that you know the work doesn't start in Congress the work ends in Congress and what we've seen um, over the last few years is is a really strong base of work happening at the state level um, to enact stronger gun laws you know I live in Virginia and last year the the when the Democrats regained control of both houses one of the first things they did was enact a really comprehensive package of laws and one of the things they did was free up local units of government to be able to ban gun carrying at certain uh, local locations. And so I noticed over the summer at my kid's playground, a new sign went up one day, a gun-free zone sign. And, and you know, that's that's very meaningful to me and kind of my day-to-day -day, day life. So, you know, I think that the momentum is on our side. I think that, you know, the moral imperative is on our side. Um, and I think that, you know, we have a really great opportunity in this Congress and with this administration to, to keep pushing and, and to keep, um, you know, working toward that big change that we've been trying to see. Excellent. Well, Chelsea, thanks for your excellent work and leadership on this issue. And thanks for joining my podcast. Of course, anytime.
Off the Cuff is produced by Marin's own Tales Untold Media. Our music is also local, provided by Temp Love. Don't miss out on future episodes of Off the Cuff. You can subscribe to the podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. Just search for Off the Cuff with Jared Huffman.